Jesus and, and the other ones we sang this morning, just great songs about the love of God and about um, His care for us. Today we're, we're going to start a little sermon series um, called Why One Cry, and we're getting ready on November 6th, uh, Gary Permenter is going to be here, and, and also Matthew uh, Natty is going to be here leading us in worship for our revival. Um, first revival we've had as a church in a while, and we're looking forward to having them come and join with us as we talk about one cry. But we're going to start a new sermon series, and the sermon series is going to be in Nehemiah. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to, we're going to talk about what it means um, to seek God in the midst of a need for revival. Um, what does it mean when we say we want to have a revival? What is a revival? What does a revival look like? What, is it, what does God do when he brings revival? Um, what, what does that look like when God revives his people and revives um, the nation? And, and, and how does that look? And so we're going to look in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to look at several verses in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to be going back to this passage over and over again and asking God to lead us as we prepare our hearts for revival. Just some things before we read the text, some things we're going to do preparing for revival. We're going to be preparing our hearts over the next several weeks. And so what I want to challenge you to do as we meet, November 6th is our revival. What I want to challenge you to do as we meet between now and November 6th, that's eight weeks away, we're going to begin praying as a church for God to move. Now, how are we asking him to move? This is what's important. This morning in our Sunday school class, we had a great Sunday school lesson on Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah was praying for God to move among God's people, and God did. God showed up, and um, he showed himself to be strong. He showed himself to be the God of the people because um, of Nehemiah's faithfulness and, and Nehemiah praying to God and Nehemiah seeking God. And so what we want to do is if God can make such a movement in Israel because of one man, Nehemiah, who, uh, um, um, excuse me, Elijah, who said, I want to be faithful, and he can make such a move in one man, Elijah, when, at the, with the prophets of Baal, that the people of God turn their faces back to God, then we want to know what would God do if our whole church got together and got involved in seeking God's face. So over the next eight weeks, we're going to be praying for that. Uh, we have started, past couple weeks, I've started at 9 o'clock in the morning um, doing a prayer time, doing a prayer meeting. Uh, for those of you that want to come on board, you can watch it at 9 with me. I mean, you can just say you're taking your coffee break or your cigarette break, go sit in your office. It's usually about 20, 30 minutes. Or, you know, don't smoke a cigarette while you're praying with me, okay? I'm just saying, you just tell them I'm taking a cigarette break and go pray with the preacher instead, okay? Um, but you can say you're taking your break and go pray with the preacher. Or you can watch it later. It is saved, so you can go back later that night and pray for us. But we're going to be praying. We're also going to be trying to get some cottage prayer meetings together. If you're willing to allow us to use your home over the next several weeks, uh, the two weeks before revival, we want to have several cottage prayer meetings. Now, you may say, what's a cottage prayer meeting? Cottage prayer meeting is just where we go to your cottage and we pray for revival in our church and in our, in our homes. And so if you're willing to allow us to have a group of people, I'd like to see us have cottage prayer meetings all over our community all over our area, where groups who live together, I know we've got several who live in this neighborhood or that neighborhood, that where one home in each neighborhood would say, you know what, we can pray in our house, and then people can go there one for two weeks before revival, they can go two nights, once a week, um, for those two weeks and pray for revival. And so we want to see God move. And if we want God to move, then we need to ask God to move. 
Uh, we, need to, we need to seek God's face, and we need to ask God to do that. And so we're going to ask, what does it look like for God to be, bring revival, and why do we need revival? And in Nehemiah chapter 1, we find another man who found himself realizing that there needed to be a revival. And so let's read God's word together. Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, now listen to what he says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And then Nehemiah said this, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O God of heaven, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and he keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And we'll continue to look through this passage. We're going to stop right there. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we'll look at what God is saying to us through Nehemiah. Dear Lord, um, Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And, and not because, God, this is one of those passages that te is telling us what always must happen or exactly how things will happen, but it is a reminder, God, that if we're going to see you move in our in our city, if you're going to, we're going to see you move in our church, if we're going to see you move in our state, if we're going to see you move in our area, God, then it is going to be because you move, not because of what we do. It's not about what we do, it's about what you do. And God, our job is to recognize the need, and our job is to seek the face of our God. And so today, I pray that we'll begin to recognize the need for revival, both in our church and in our community and in our state and in our nation, and around our world. God, we are in desperate need for another great awakening. God, throughout the history of the world and throughout the history of this nation, God, you have brought great awakenings that called your people back to you. We call them revivals. You could call them awakenings. You could call them moves of the Holy Spirit. But God, we are in desperate need of you to move in our, in our church, in our city, in our state, in our world. And so today, God, we come to you, and we, like Nehemiah, we want to see the need. We want to see what's going on so that we can know how to pray and what we need to say to you, God. And then as we look at how Nehemiah prayed and what Nehemiah did, God, help to inform the way that we seek you in the weeks to come. God, we are, we are not asking, God, for anything more or anything less than for you to move as you choose in your church among your people here today and in this in the weeks ahead. So God, we, we pray that you would use us according to your purposes for your glory. God, we pray that everything that happens in the next eight weeks, God, whether it be great things that we shout about for generations to come, or it be small victories that you work in the hearts of your people, God, we pray that your will will be done in the weeks to come. And God, the success of our revival will not be by the numbers we see, but by your people turning their hearts back to you. 
Because, Father, that's what we see in Nehemiah. So, God, we pray that you would allow us to see that and give us a heart to see you move, that we would lift up one cry to you as a church over the next eight weeks, that you would move in us. God, we pray that in your name we pray. Amen. One of the things we see in this story, we see Nehemiah. Nehemiah, just so you know, Nehemiah is serving in the city of Susa. Um, Nehemiah, at this time, he is a part of what's known as the Persian Empire. There's a lot of politics that's going on here. I'm not going to bore you with a lot of history and politics, but I love history and I love politics, so I'm going to bore you with a little bit of it, so buckle up. So what's happened is... You know, over two centuries, well, not quite over two centuries, about two centuries before a a kingdom called the Assyrian Empire came into the northern part of Israel. Uh, The the, the 11 tribes of Israel that lived in the north um, conquered them, spread their people around. The Assyrian Empire destroyed the kingdom of Israel. If you remember in the Bible, Israel was once one nation, then they split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and Israel's destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And then the Assyrian Empire, they are conquered by this guy, this kingdom called the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonians, everybody loved the Babylonians for a minute because the Babylonians took care of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were evil, brutal dudes, okay? I want you to know this. The Assyrians were the baddest of the bad. Not to go into big detail, but one of the things the Assyrians loved to do, first off, they would take you, if they conquered your kingdom, they would take your people, they would move you to another nation, then they would take your daughters, and they would marry your daughters off to men of other races so that they could breed you out of existence. That was part of their their plan uh, of getting rid of these nations that they conquered. If If you were a king, what they would do is they worshiped a fish god, And so they would take fish hooks and they would stick them into the skin of the officials of the other kingdom that they defeated and they would drag them through the city by fish hooks, giant fish hooks that they had stuck in there. They were bad dudes, okay? So the Babylonians come on the scene. Everybody's like, oh, we like these guys better. But they were just as brutal. They they weren't quite as brutal. They They were evil, but they weren't evil, evil, right? And so... They, too, would take people out of their nation. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, destroyed the temple, took the people of Judah and the southern kingdom into captivity. And then later, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the Babylonians, they were defeated by a group called the Persians. Now, the Persians came from Russia. They were a group of of dudes from Russia, sort of the Caspian Sea area, that came south. They built a kingdom there in what is now Iran, and they defeated the Babylonians. So this is where we're at. So the Babylonians, so first you have the Assyrians. They were mean dudes. They would take you and breed you out of existence. Then you had the Babylonians. They would just take you and move you away because if they moved you away, maybe you couldn't build an army to fight them. And then you had the Persians, and the Persians were different. The Persians wanted you to love them. So what the Persians would do, the Persians started sending people back home. They said, hey, go home. Rebuild your temples. Worship your gods. Make sacrifices for the Persians' kings to your gods. So, because we don't want just our gods on our side. We want all the gods on our side. 
And so that's sort of the history of what's going on. Nehemiah, before him, there's a man named Ezra who was sent back to Jerusalem by the Persian kings to start rebuilding the temple. Now Nehemiah is there and he's working for this Persian king. And what he finds out is about the desperate state of the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah sees an overwhelming need in Jerusalem. He sees that Judah, he sees that Jerusalem is in great trouble. He sees that there's big problems there. And what are the problems he sees? Look at the text here. It gives us three problems he sees. Number one, Judah was shamed. The people were shamed by their neighbors. The once proud kingdom was in decline. One of the things that the the Babylonians did and the Assyrians did was they would move people out of the land. And so there's estimates that say about 100 B.C., which would have been about 500 years before all this happened, there were about a million Jews living in Judea. But by the time of the exile in 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar, track with me, Nebuchadnezzar takes the Jews out of Israel, there are probably about 150 people living in all of Judea, 150,000 people living in all of Judea. So from a million to 150,000. And so the need is huge because one in ten people have been taken out of the city. And the people that they took out of the land, the people they take out of Judah, aren't, aren't the poor. What they leave is all the poor people, all the, the people who have birth defects or mental defects, people who are, who are down on their luck. They leave them in Judah, and the Babylonians take everybody that has a business, everybody that has any, you know, any kind of training. They take them out. So all that's left, are those who are down on their luck for whatever reason. And so the land begins to suffer. Historians say that during this period of the exile, there are no creative works made in Judea in this time. There are no buildings, great buildings that are still lasting built. The city was basically, the, the, the land was basically in a dark age. And, and Nehemiah sees this, he sees what's going on. Secondly, he finds out that Jerusalem's walls were down. The walls of a city, I don't know, we don't live in a city that has walls, right? We live in a sprawling metroscape. I mean, really and truly, if it wasn't for a little sign on the road, you wouldn't know that you're going from Jackson to Pearl to Flowood to Madison. It just sort of all just sort of, and we're not even in a big city, right? We're in a small city. But, but there, they, we live in this place where you go from one place to another. But in their day, you had a wall around your city. And the walls were important. The walls were important for a couple of reasons. Number one, the one we all know is important for defense. In that day, people that wanted your stuff, if they wanted your stuff, you know what they would do? They'd get a group of guys together and say, hey, let's go take their stuff and we'll kill them and we'll take their stuff. And they did that all the time. And so people would build cities, and they would build walls around the cities to keep these folks over here from taking our stuff. If you were a farmer, and you farmed your land, you may say, well, what about my farm? That's okay. All the silos for the farms around the city were there in the city. They were behind the walls. But that's not the only thing the walls did. The walls also protected them politically. It also protected them culturally. Um, you know, the walls of a city were incredibly important. Look, if you didn't want certain people to come into your city, let's say one day a group of people said, hey, we're moving in, 
We want to move in your city, and you didn't like the way they looked. You know what you could do? You could shut the gates and say, uh-uh, go to the next city. If you, didn't like the way, if you didn't like the cut of their jib, right? You can say, you ain't coming up in here. You can go somewhere else, but you ain't coming up in here. Also, you can keep cultures you didn't want out of your city. You could keep things sort of homogenous. Everyone lived in the city together. You could also control economics through that. If you were the king and somebody made you mad and they had a business and you didn't want their business to flourish, then when the caravans came down to trade with them, you just shut the gates. Say, sorry, you can't come in here. So the walls were incredibly important. And yet, Nehemiah finds out that the walls are torn down of the city. And, and, and the Bible says that when Nehemiah sees this, when he sees that the city is in trouble, that the people are shamed, and that the walls are down, he weeps. Now look, I've had things happen in my life. But Nehemiah sees the needs of Jerusalem. He sees the needs of his city. And he feels them so deeply that his heart is broken because of that. It reminds me of 21 years ago, we watched this great video that Jason, I want to say thank you to Jason and Jeff and, and, and Andrea who lended their voices to that video this morning about 9-11, those prayers, those, those verses. 21 years ago, our nation mourned as one of our cities was destroyed. For those of you that are young, I remember whenever the video came out, I don't know how you heard this, one of the kids out here said, What's wrong with that city? What's wrong with that building? Why is that building falling down? You know, our kids don't remember that. And that's weird to me. My son Noah, who's 20 years old, was born on July 31st, 2020, uh, 2002. He was, he was born almost a year after 9-11. He, he lived, he has lived his entire life in a post-9-11 world. And our world has been shaped by the destruction of a city. But even this city that we live in, how many of us remember years ago when a young man walked into our school, Luke Whittleman opened fire, y'all remember that? It affected our city, amen? It still affects our city. I still talk to people who, who remember that, people who were in school with him, who were there that day. See, what happened to the city of Jerusalem so resonated with Nehemiah that he mourned. And listen, what we need to understand, that just like Nehemiah in his day, we have a great need in our city and in our state and in our country today. We are in grave trouble. We are. Let me give you some statistics. This just came from a ministry called Mission Insight. It's by ACS. They did some surveys in the state of Mississippi. And let me give you a startling statistic. I'll give you more statistics as we go through. But did you know, first off, we're in great trouble because the church is in decline in Mississippi. Just like there was great trouble in Jerusalem, we're in great trouble because the church is in decline. In 2017, 40% of Mississippians said that they were active in a religious congregation or a community. So 2017, it's four years ago, five years ago, 40% of Mississippians said that they went to church or they went to some other religious activity. But in 2021, only one in four, 25% of Mississippi, Mississippians said that they were active in any kind of a religious gathering. 
I want you to think about that for a moment. We go from almost 50% of Mississippians going to church to today only one in four. That means when you go into the grocery When I was a kid, when you went in the grocery store, more than half of the people you passed down the aisles of the grocery store on a Sunday afternoon, if you went to church, if the grocery store was open, I remember still when grocery stores didn't open on Sunday. That's how old I am. If you didn't have any milk for your cornbread, and you didn't have cornbread, amen? But now, if you walk down the aisles, whereas one out of every two, when I was growing up, probably, actually probably 65%, I think it was, 65% of Mississippians went to church when I was growing up. Now only one in four do. We used to be called the buckle of the Bible belt. Let me tell you something. If we're the buckle of the Bible belt, then the belt's broken, folks. And the pants are on the ground. And we need to understand we are in great trouble here in our state. We, we, no long, we live in a post-Christian Mississippi. We live in a cr- post-Christian state, in a post-Christian nation, in a post-Christian culture. And over the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to see that happen. We're in great trouble because the church is in decline all over. You know, we stress out sometimes because of the decline of our church. Listen, the church in general is declining in Mississippi. And COVID has exacerbated it. We see it more and more. More and more people are, 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 are deciding to stay at home instead of coming to fellowship with the body. More and more people are deciding not to go to church. They went home and they realized, hey, I don't have to go to church to feel good about myself. And the, the truth of the matter is, you don't. You don't have to go to church to feel better about yourself. Because if you were going to church to feel better about yourself, you are going to church for the wrong reason. We don't go to church to feel better about ourselves. We go to church to worship a living God. Amen? We need to understand that the church is in decline. Secondly, we are in great shame. Nehemiah, first he saw the great need he saw that the church, the trouble, that the church was, that the city was in decline, but he also saw the great shame that was happening. People were ridiculing the Jews because their, their city was, was gone. They were ridiculing them because of what's going on. But listen, right now, the church is, in, is being ridiculed. Just as Israel was being ridiculed, the church is being ridiculed. Did you know right now, this past, in that same time period, 2017, to, to 2021, those Mississippians who claimed to be Christians in the state of Mississippi fell from 56% to 53%. That's a 3.4% fall in the number of Mississippians who claimed to be Christians, to be followers of Christ. But in that same time frame, do you know what the fastest growing religion in the state of Mississippi is right now? Anybody want to guess? It's agnosticism and atheism. One in three Mississippians claim to either have no religion whatsoever or claim to be atheists. And in our country and in our state, atheism is on the rise. We are in great shame. Finally, our walls are down. 
Because it's not just, listen, this is what's important. It's not just that the number of people who proclaim to be Christians are in decline. It's the fact that we find false teaching on the rise in our state. So even those who are Christians, we find that many of them do not have Christian values. There's this idea called a worldview. Let me, let me explain to you what the word worldview means. The worldview means the prism through which you see the world around you. The worldview is the way you see the world. Let me give you an example. How many of y'all remember when you grow up, you used to get those little books when you... This is for the older folks. Kids, y'all may remember some of this, but y'all don't remember like I do. I remember when we used to go on trips with my grandparents, the first place we'd stop when we got, out of, got on the road was we would stop at a Stuckey's in Pelahatchee. How many of y'all remember Stuckey's? Everybody remember Stuckey's? And I'd get two things when I went to go to a Stuckey's, okay? Number one, I'd get a pecan log, amen? And then number two, I'd go get one of those little puzzle books. Because we were going up to the mountains, and I'm going to be riding in the car for hours, and the last thing, I'm already going to have to listen to Hank Williams Jr. for the whole trip. I mean, Hank Williams Sr., excuse me, my granddad didn't want to listen to Jr. Sr., the whole trip. And, and, and George Jones and Waylon Jennings, the whole trip. I already had to listen to that. I might as well have something entertaining to do and be sit there and do my puzzle book. And one of the things in my puzzle book was there was this thing, and you would look at it, it would be this little circle, right? And the circle would be sort of this red and blue dots all over it. And you'd see it, and you could look at it, and you'd try to figure out what it was, and you couldn't really figure out what it was. But in the back of the book, you had a set of red glasses. Anybody remember this? And you put those red glasses on, and you'd look at that puzzle book, and you could see the picture and see what was in that little puzzle. That's a worldview. The worldview is the prism through which we see the world. And the prism that most Mississippians live in right now is not a Christian worldview. I'm going to give you some statistics before we go on. Only one in three Mississippians agree with the statement, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Only one in three Mississippians. Only one in three Mississippians agree with the statement I, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father, but by me. Only one in three Mississippians agree with that. Not only that, but only 38.5% of Mississippians answer this statement, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, while 61.5% of Mississippians either do not agree or they have no opinion. I did a survey. Um, the great thing about this missions insight is you can actually do a survey by, by demographic, by mileage. So I did a survey within three miles of our church, the city of Pearl, basically. And in the city of Pearl, 67% of people disagree or have no opinion on the statement that says, I believe God created a literal heaven or hell. 40% say they agree or undecided about the statement that says, I am unsure or undecided about whether a God exists. 67% disagree or have no opinion on the statement that says Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life on earth, and 40% disagree with the fact that Jesus is God in flesh. And we see this all over our nation. Na na nationally, right now, more, there are more unmarried mothers under the age of 30 than married mothers, with 40% of all babies being born out of wedlock, and 48% of first-time births to unmarried women. Over 7 million adults are on probation, parole or in jail or prison more than any other nation on earth. Forty million visitors peruse porn sites on the web each day. And, and the average age of the first time that, a, that American looks at porn is 11 years of age. 
And do you know where more people per capita look at porn than anywhere else in the nation? In the Bible Belt. In southern states. Christian states. And the statistics go on and on and on and on. Dr. Erwin Lutzer said this, The God of the Bible will not endlessly tolerate idolatry and benign neglect. He graciously endures rejection and insults, but at some point he might choose to bring a nation to its knees with severe discipline. We are in a state of emergency, church. And, and look, I know, I grew up in the 80s where everything was, our hair's on fire. I grew up in the middle of all of this, but listen, the truth is this. Our land is in desperate need. Our walls are down. Our churches are decaying. And the truth of God's word is not being preached. And we need to, that, that should bother us. It should concern us. What we need is a great awakening. Throughout the history of America, up until the, the 1900s, the pattern in America is every 60 to 70 years there would be a great awakening in America of God's Word. And we haven't seen one. We haven't seen a great awakening in over 120 years in America. We haven't seen it. And so the question is, what is a spiritual awakening? Or as we commonly call it, we call it a revival. Well, Richard Owen Roberts, he just, he just finds revival as this. It is the extraordinary movement of the Spirit of God in the hearts of God's people that produces extraordinary results. Let me stop right there. Because listen, I said this last week, but I want to repeat it. Usually when we think about revival, we think of evangelism services where a bunch of people come down to the altar and get saved. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that is not primarily what revival is. Revival primarily means the extraordinary movement of God's Spirit and God's people to, to create that produces extraordinary results. And what Nehemiah see, saw was there needed to be a movement of God in Israel. We look at Nehemiah, and if, you, if I ask you what's the story of Nehemiah about, primarily you will probably say it's about the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. And that is a huge part about it. But really, primarily the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra is a revival of God's people to God's Word. And we need to understand that God is calling us to, to, to be revived as His people. God is calling us to love His Word and to care for His Word. And what we need is for God to move in our lives. Now our need, our need... It is great. Our need is, is overwhelming. But the second truth and the last truth this morning is our God is overpowering. Nehemiah realized that he could not solve the problems of his city by himself. He needed God to move. Listen, church, if we're going to see God move in our lives, in our church, in our city, in our families, then it's not going to be because of what we do. It's going to be because of what God does. Amen? And so what does Nehemiah do? Listen to what he does. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. What does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah does not go out here and start pointing fingers at others. Nehemiah realizes that it begins with him. 
Today, church, what we need to begin asking God to do is we need to begin by asking God, would you move in my heart and in our hearts? As great as the need was, Nehemiah realized that he couldn't solve the issues that Israel faced without the work of God. Nehemiah was trusting in the extraordinary movement of the Spirit of God that would produce extraordinary results, but it would begin with God's people. And we need to understand that we need God to move. It must be, it, we must realize it is our only hope as a church, it's our only hope as a city, it's our only hope as a state or a nation. We need God to move. We should believe that God has, He can, and He will revive us. God has always done that. God has always moved in, his country, in this country and among His churches. When His people humble themselves and they ask Him to move, God moves. And so the question we need to ask ourselves as we begin this eight weeks of preparing for revival, it's this, do you believe that God can and will bring revival to His people? Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that God needs to bring awakening to our city? And do you believe that He can and will do it? And listen, I see a lot of head bobbing, but I don't see a lot of things out here that make me confident. Do we believe it? Then what are we going to do about it? It's one thing to say, I believe it. It's another thing to do the things God's Word calls us to do. God is calling us to pray today that He would move in our lives and in our church in such a powerful way that it affects the world around us. God moved in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 because God's people got together and prayed. Jesus told them, he said, y'all need to go up into the upper room and pray and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you know what the church did? They did what God said to do. They prayed and God moved. When Peter was put in prison, they prayed and God moved. When Paul and Silas were put in prison, the church prayed and God moved. The people prayed and God moved. Listen, do we believe that God wants to move and do we believe that if we seek His face that He will move? I do. I believe that God wants to move. But we've got to be willing to seek His face. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to challenge you, church, to pray. Starting this Tuesday, or Wednesday, I told you, 9 o'clock, I'm going to be leading us in prayer times. They'll be about 20, 30 minutes long. It's not going to be drawn out. It's going to be, hey, I can get on there and I can pray. And you can watch it in the mornings. You can watch it that evening. You can watch it the next day. But will you join me? Will you commit to join me in praying? Will you commit to join me in praying that God would move in our church? Will you commit to be here and pray on Sunday mornings? We're going to have some time of prayer on Sunday mornings over the next several weeks leading up to revival. We're just going to stop and we're just going to pray, God, would you move in a powerful way in our hearts? Do you believe that God can and will move? We're going to, we're going to seek God's face. We're going to call our church to look deeper and deeper into His Word, to look deeper and deeper into who He is, to look deeper and deeper into seeking after Him. And if we do that, what I believe, listen, and, and I want to be clear, 
Do I believe that if we pray over the next eight weeks that we'll, we'll have 100 people saved and we'll have baptism service with 20, 30 people getting baptized? I believe it can happen. Do I know that's what's going to happen? No, but what it may look like, what revival it's true it may look like, is a group of deacons and their wives and their children and their aunts and their uncles and their cousins and pastors and their wives and their children and their aunts and uncles and Sunday school teachers and their wives and their cousins and their aunts and sitting here at the altar and praying, Woe is me, God. That's just as powerful of a revival. And we need to pray that God would work in our hearts. Do we need revival, church? I'm going to say it again. Y'all are really quiet today. Do we need revival? Do you want to see God move? Then will you join me in praying that he will? I believe God will move if God's people will read his word and seek his face and follow hard after him. I believe God will move. And that may not mean we have 200 people on a Sunday morning. It may mean that we have the same 100 people, but 100 people who are passionate for him.